I told my wife this morning, because uh, I, I have a Bible study at 6.30, so I was racing out the door. I said, honey, pray for me because I am really concerned about the men over the lunch hour. They're really in bad shape. No, I, they, <laughs> we're dealing with chapter 11 of Daniel. I said, that's a very hard chapter to deal with. So what I, what I want to encourage you to do is have... Uh, or look at it when you go home if you don't have it with you, page 27 and 28 of the note packet because they're very helpful charts of what is going on here. We are not going to read the entire chapter. That is the entire chapter 11. But what I've done on the board here, and I think you can see this, this, this is what's going on in this chapter, and it really goes into chapter 12, too. Chapter 12 is a very short chapter. Now, let's, let's get uh, anchored again in this last part of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The 70 weeks have been declared for your people, 77, that's 490 years. And then we saw how that's divided up. But Daniel 11 and 12 does is expands on this framework. So, verses 2 through 35 is a very brief account of the 69 weeks of year, 483 years. Remember, that's from the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. until the Lord Jesus uh, goes to Jerusalem to die on the cross. It's exactly 483 years. And what it does for us is it goes forward in a couple of verses, summarizes Four major kings of Persia, Alexander the Great, and then the division of his kingdom when he dies in 323 BC between General Ptolemy and General Seleucid. And the Ptolemies are in Egypt, Seleucids are in Syria, and they fight over Israel for a couple of hundred years. And it is, honestly, this chapter, chapter 11, is one of those chapters that gives you confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because again, kings and kings and kings are mentioned one after another. And I mean, for our purposes, it is, it's really impossible for us to go into that amount of detail. I'll, I'll lose you after about the third king. And by the fifth king, you'll be yawning, and by the ninth king, you'll be asleep. So, I mean, I'm being cynical. You wouldn't be. But it's just, it's the kind of thing that what it does is it just shows us this is meaningful, trustworthy prophecies. And for the person who's critical of the Bible, this absolutely baffles them. And so how do they do if they're baffled? Well, Daniel didn't write this. It was written 150 years after all this happened. Well, that's one way to solve it, but it doesn't solve anything because it is so clearly prophetic scripture. So it's a wonderful section for that reason. And then verse 36 of chapter 11 through verse 3 of chapter 12 is the seventh degree. And of course, the individual that is talked about here is that individual that the New Testament calls Antichrist, the little horn of chapter 2 and of chapter 7, the abominable one who desolates that Jesus talks about. And so that, if you, can, if you can look at this diagram and you can say, that diagram makes sense to me. And what chapter 11 and 12 is doing is giving us an overview of the 69 weeks, the 483 years, three years until the Messiah comes, and it's giving us a synopsis of what happens in the 70th week. 
If that makes sense to you, then you understand what's going on in these two chapters. So let me ask the question, does that make sense to you? Because of what we've done before, this should make, this should make a framework for you. Yes, I can hang my thoughts on that. And that's what is just, it's, it's wonderful about this book. It really is. Woody. Yeah, when did the 483 years start? When did it start? Yeah, no, it, it did. It, that's past. Because it starts with the decree of Artaxerxes, 444 BC, and goes up to the time of Jesus when he enters Jerusalem to be crucified. And I mean, that's exactly 483 years. So that's past. That's why I put ellipsis point between those two blocks. The 70th week for the writer here and for, the fu- for you and me is future. We're, we're still waiting for that. Okay? All right. Please. We passed 483 years. No, we're starting. I'm sorry, what is your question? What about the 483 years? That's past. But Daniel's in yeah, but for Daniel, for Daniel, when he is writing this, it's still future for Daniel. Okay. Okay? And that's good. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, because I'm sure there, there was probably a couple of others that had the same question. Daniel died when Cyrus was the king? Uh, no, by Daniel, um, really, Daniel dies right after Cyrus is killed and Darius replaces him. That's right when Daniel dies. So for Daniel, as he's writing this, this is future. I thought you were asking for us, for you and me, it's past. It's already occurred. But for Daniel, it is for, it's the future yet. Are you clear? I mean, are you okay? No, I'm not. You're not. I'm sorry. Okay, what can I do to help clarify it for you? He needs to understand that 69 weeks is past. That's right. So the one week is future for us. The end. That's right. The end. The end of this block of time. This is all start. This all is revealed here. What chapter eleven and twelve is expanding on that. Woody, we already studied this in the sense that Daniel seventy weeks of sevens, four hundred and ninety years have been declared for your people. And he says, from the time of the decree to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, etc., 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 until Messiah is cut off. So you have the beginning and the ending is 483 years. That's exactly what the angel tells David, uh, Daniel, excuse me. And then he says there's a 70th week, that final week, in which the abominable one who desolates sets up worship of himself and so on, and then he is crushed. He is he is cut off. So for you and me, for you and me, we're somewhere in this ellipsis point. We're somewhere in here. This has all happened. We're waiting for this to occur. And Jim, we don't know when that 70th week is going to occur. That's future, undetermined, unknown, except by God. Yeah, I think there are things that the, the scriptures talk a little bit about, uh, some signs that you can see yeah. that indicate that the end is near. But... The Lord Jesus is very clear in Matthew 24. Don't set dates. Don't try to set dates. So I have always taken the position, and I've told my students that, if somebody comes on the TV or you read a book, I know when Jesus is coming back. 
Don't buy the book. You're wasting your money. Turn off the TV set because don't believe them. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to be so categorical there and so unkind. But if someone says, I know when he's coming back and I can tell you the date, please do not believe them. They do not have the authority from God to do that. Jesus says, no one knows. Well, it, yes. <laughs> it'll probably be a little bit before that, Matt, but you're right. We just, it's, just, it's healthy for us to just say, Lord, I trust you with it. You told us not to be concerned about it. But uh, the other thing that the Bible does is it gives us some, some markers, some warning signs, and the, the encouragement of that is to call people to faith. That's the encouragement for that. Well, anyway. All right, I hope you're with me. I do not want to deal with anything in Daniel 11 until we get to verse 36. Because again, what is going on in Daniel 11 up through verse 35 is this account of all of these different rulers. And if you look on page 27 and 28, it exactly, I I put these charts here. The first several verses of chapter 11 correspond to the major Persian kings and then Alexander the Great who conquers them. Then the second chart, which is actually on page 27, it's a list of all of the Ptolemy and Seleucid kings, and it gives you the verses in Daniel chapter 11 that refer to them. So... That's uh, right, right. So as Forrest Gump said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that, unless you want me to say more about it. Because honestly, it is, this is really technical, but it is every, every historian who reads this says this is remarkable. It is describing the history of the Jewish people from the time when Artaxerxes says they can go back to Jerusalem until Jesus. And it describes in amazing detail the fighting between the Ptolemies and Seleucids as they try to control Israel. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, it is one of those chapters that builds our confidence in the trustworthiness of, the God, of God's word. What I want to do is instead look at verse 36 and following. Because here again we see, now you will recognize this. Here we see the description of this person Look at verse 5, until the end time. And then the first word of verse 36 is then the king. So Daniel is, as he is writing down what the angel is telling him, that now switch. We're now going to focus on the end time. And this individual. Okay, now you just I'm just going to read this. Then the king will do as he pleases, will exalt and magnify himself above every god, will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, will prosper until the indignation is finished, for which is decreed that will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for any other god. He will magnify himself. He will honor a god of fortresses. He will be a military leader, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Okay, let me stop there for just a minute. If you read all, and there are actually seven of them, seven descriptive phrases and seven descriptive characteristics, 
Does that sound like anybody we've studied earlier? It sounds like the little horn described in Daniel 2 and 7, the willful king in chapter 8, and the one that's discussed in chapter 9. And then you go to the New Testament. It's the same descriptive phrases that are used by Jesus in Matthew 24. So who is this figure? It's the Antichrist. It's this key figure at the end of time who will organize the final rebellion against God. And it, these descriptive phrases indicate to us a man who will exalt himself, who will insist, and we're going to study that eventually when we get into the Revelation chapter 13 and following. He will exalt himself above everyone else and demand that everyone in the world worship him. So now what I would like to do, uh, Jim, can I write on that wall over there? <laughs> Probably I can't. Uh, you can, but there can be a friction though. We'll never be ever invited to come into this room again or any other room. Uh, I'm just going to have to erase some of this. I do not have enough room to do what I want to do. I'm going to erase this, so if you needed a copy, I hope you've done that. Now what we learn here in Daniel is very, very important. I'm going to take the framework of time that the book of Daniel tells us about the 70th week. And then this is confirmed throughout the entire New Testament. The 70th week is, remember, seven years. And the text makes it very clear, halfway through, we'll divide this, halfway through, is where he sets up worship of himself. When I say worship, I mean Antichrist. That's the New Testament label for it. Antichrist worship, right here, the middle of this seven-year period. All right, now, for us to be able to understand what's going to happen in the next verses of Daniel chapter 11, I, I want you to understand something that's very, very clear in the teachings about the 70th week. The first three and a half years, I'll use the terminology of Daniel. The little horn consolidates his world power. <clears throat> I mean, he does. In the first three and a half years, we read about that in Daniel chapter 2, and a little tiny bit, a lot more in Daniel chapter 7. We read some of it in Daniel chapter 8. The New Testament gives us, and I give you the references there in the notes, all the New Testament references just keep expanding upon them. So what he does, Revelation 13 will call him the beast. He consolidates his power in the world. And he sets up an amazing commercial enterprise, a religious enterprise. Everything is focusing on him. And then, because he's reached that peak, he insists that everyone worship him. And then the last three and a half years, his empire collapses. <coughs> and all of the regional powers of the world turn on him. And where do they gather for battle? at the Valley of Jezreel in Armageddon. 
So if you, and this is, this is all I'm doing here is summarizing as simply as I possibly can this framework that Daniel's 70th week creates for us. At the first three and a half years, he solves a lot of problems. The world turns to him, and he solves the major problems that the world has, has had for centuries. He brings economic prosperity to the world, and so it just reasonably, it, it's reasonable and it makes sense. Because he seems to be able to do nothing wrong, he insists that everybody worship him. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, when he's answering the question of the disciples, Lord, what will be the signs of the end of the age? How do we know? That? He says, when you see this guy. Verse 15, Matthew 24, when you see the abominable one who desolates, set up worship for himself, run, get out of there. And so then, then as, as he does that, his world coalition starts to splinter. And you're going to see this here in just a couple of minutes as we read in Daniel chapter 11, verse 39 and 40 and 41. The kings of the east come toward him. The kings of the north come toward him. The kings of the south come forth. And they all make war on him. And where is that final campaign? Again, this is what the scriptures say in the valley of Jezreel. And Armageddon. And so it's just, it's the consistency of this framework is throughout the scriptures. And when you have this framework then, it really, it's going to really help us as we get to study in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. Okay, now, I'm trying to do this as incrementally, as step by step, and as simply as I can. So I need to know if you're with me. Fred has a question. Um, in regard to the Antichrist, he is not Satan. He is a man. And right. he is empowered. Is he empowered, would you say, by Satan? Absolutely. We will read that in, in chapter 12 of Revelation. He is absolutely empowered by Satan. Very clear. And that's, that's where he gets his power. That's where he gets his authority uh, and so on. Because as I like, I've put it that way already this morning, but what I like to put it, this is the final rebellion against God. I mean, all of Satan's resources are, are just pulled together and thrown at God. And they, that, that final collapse of Satan's kingdom uh, and everything will be the result of this. And he will then be, well, we'll, we'll de- I'm, yeah. I, want, I want to get through all this because there's a chronology to this in the book of Revelation. But this framework comes from Daniel. This framework comes from Daniel, and then what the New Testament does, and we've looked at some of this passage, we'll look at more next, once we get into this study, more, the New Testament just adds more and more details to this. But by the time you're done with the Bible, the last verse of Revelation 22, you say, you know, I really understand the framework of what God is going to do. And of course, as you already know, God's going to win. <laughs> Maybe you didn't know that. God's going to win. And Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, now I saw Jim. Uh, you, I was just this seven years is also in a nomenclature of the tribulation. It is. And we, Jesus is the one who calls it this. We get the term tribulation from Jesus in Matthew 24. He's the one that calls this the tribulation. Some, not a great deal. Jeremiah's focus is much more 
on Judah going into exile and Judah coming back. He does mention in chapter 24 that the hope of Israel is the righteous branch, the king of David, the son of David, which is its messianic messiah. But Jeremiah doesn't give us a great amount of detail about the second advent of Christ and all that. Isaiah does, but not Jeremiah, not as much. Good question. Any, okay? All right, now, if, if you understand basically what I've said up there, the first three and a half years, he consolidates his power. The second three and a half years, his coalition blows apart. So, Look at verse 39. I'm in 11. We're just building. We saw his descriptive phrases about what he's like, etc. in 36, 37, 38, now 39. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. He will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Now, again, I mean, just read that, read that, what he is doing. He's a military man. He's a successful military man. He does it in the honor of a foreign god, which is clearly satanic in, in the context that you read in Revelation. And he will just build this support by giving out wealth, giving out land, as those help him establish this worldwide coalition. Verse 40. But at the end time, a very important phrase. The king of the south will collide with him. The king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, many ships. He will enter countries to overflow them and pass through. And he will enter into, verse 41, the beautiful land. That phrase, beautiful land, is used in the Old Testament consistently of what land? The Holy Land, the land of Israel, the promised land that God has given to the Jews. He will enter that. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and foremost of the sons of Ammon. They are all the nations, the ancient nations that surround Israel. It would be Jordan and Syria and uh, to the very south, but is part of, of Jordan, as southern Jordan, right as it goes down into what you know as Petra. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt not escape. And he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold, silver, and over the precious things of Egypt and Libya and Ethiopians. He's going to conquer the northeastern corner of Africa and all of its wealth. Verse 44, but from rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate. He will pitch tents of his royal pavilion between the sea and the most beautiful holy mountain. What's the most beautiful holy mountain? What city is that? It's Jerusalem. It's called that in many places throughout the New Old Testament. The beautiful holy mountain is Jerusalem. Yet his end will come and no one will help him. So what does this tell us? Now I'm going to... I'm going to... This is a map.
maybe you're starting to recognize this map. This is the Sea of Galilee, this is the Dead Sea, this is the Jordan River, okay? Now it tells us that powers of the north will invade, powers of the east will invade, powers of the south will invade. And he's gonna set up his rule here in the beautiful land. Phrase that's used in the Old Testament as a reference to Israel. And he's going to pitch his tents between the sea and the holy mountain. And that's right here. This is the Jezreel Valley. This is Har, the mountain of Megiddo. This is Ar. So the, ge the geography of what we have just read about is very easy to put on a map. It's, I mean, it's, it's isn't, this isn't really rocket science for geography. We know exactly what he's talking about. And so, and right here, and this is what the Bible is now, we learn it, we learn it here, and the Bible's going to start telling us more and more about this. By this, I mean this final campaign. And Revelation 19 is going to tell us the most about it. Because it's going to tell us, as this campaign begins, and as all of these world military powers are heading and into the Jezreel Valley, that's when Jesus comes back. And Jesus is going to come back from the Mount of Olives, go into the Temple Mount, claim it for his father, head north to the Jezreel Valley. He's going to grab the Antichrist and the, and the false prophet and throw them into the lake of fire. That's literally what it says in, in 19. And then he's going to bind Satan. He's going to defeat the enemies and set up his kingdom. So what, what, what Daniel is telling us here, and it's, it's an outline, but what Daniel is telling us is this, this, this is the sequence of what's going to happen. And then he's going to come to his end. No one will help him. The final rebellion against God will be over. And then verse 12, chapter 12 tells us that in the midst of this, God is going to protect and save his people, the people of Israel. All right, let's, let me stop here and see how you're doing. Is your map up there? Not exactly what he, I mean, the geography's there, but... If you want to call that a map, uh, it isn't quite. <laughs> but it, all I'm doing is you can take what's on your map and just take the geography of the Eastern Mediterranean. You can see it. That you can really make that out. Fred. The uh, the weaponry that's used here in reference in chapter forty, the uh, the horsemen, uh, mm. verse forty, chariots, ships. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be taken literally, would it? I mean, would it be reflect? Would it reflect actually a, a more modern weaponry? Yeah, system? I mean, it, it very it very well could. Um, I, I'm not sure that we should necessarily take that literally, as they will be the weapons used at the end. But chariots could very easily be understood as tanks. It, I mean, it really could. But, I mean, that is a little bit problematic, Fred. But, I mean, if, if Daniel, uh, well, anyway, yeah. so I, th I think we can just make modern application of this. The, the weaponry of war 
will be used uh, as a part of this attacking the uh, forces of the Antichrist. Because uh, really his coalition that he built in the first three and a half years is unraveling. And they, they are attacking him now. And that final attack is going to be there in the Jezreel Valley. Well, some people used to say, well, there's going to be a nuclear war and everybody's going to, but I, I'm not sure that that necessarily, the text demands that. That will go back to very primitive means of warfare. I'm, I don't know if the text demands that we do that. So where your map is like the north, south, and east, there's nothing coming from the west then. Well, the west is Mediterranean. Yeah, but I mean... And, and remember, um, the, I mean, you know, you're, this is Mediterranean, Europe's yeah. up here. Yeah. And the Antichrist is from Europe. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, where is Iran's on that text? North? Or Iran would be over here. Oh, it's on the east? Okay. Alright. Book of Revelation speaks of a 200 million man army coming from the east. Which is interesting. Because, I mean, that's not that's not necessarily a hard, if we if that is to be understood literally, that's not a hard thing to imagine with the population of the Asian countries amassing an army of that size. <laughs> Where did you get the verse where it speaks of the Antichrist coming from Europe? Is your, is your question where? Yes. Well, it's, it comes really, um, uh, Daryl, from the material we saw in uh, chapter 2 and chapter 7 that he comes from, this little horn comes from that second phase of that fourth kingdom, which is that Mediterranean kingdom that historically we know is Rome. And then that, that the second phase is that ten, you know, ten toes, and then Daniel 7, it's the ten horns, and he's the little horn that comes from one of those. And so the, it's, it's, a, it's an inference, but it seems legitimate that he would come from the European Mediterranean Empire, which is what that fourth kingdom was. Rome was a Mediterranean, European-centered Mediterranean Empire. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's a stretch. I think that's, that's reasonable to say he would come from the European Mediterranean side, not from Africa, not from Asia, not from Eurasia, the, today's Russia and that area up there. All right, I'm throwing a lot out. You can see why I asked Peggy to pray for me. I mean, this is a hard section, but at, because of the detail, we're sort of skipping, but Yet, at the same time, it really is just a consistent framework that just keeps being built as we go through the book of Daniel. It really does. It's, and that's why it's such an amazing book. So, let's see. Any other questions? Because I want to spend a little bit of time on chapter 12. Just looking Please. at verse 40 again, mm-hmm. at the time of the end, the king of the south and the king of the north will storm out. And then... Then the reference is again to he, and it's he, he. And there, mm-hmm. So we, we're back to the Antichrist. That's correct. The pronoun he is back to the, that's so right. That's a little out of order there, uh, I, I guess. Uh, they're engaging him, but he still isn't being stopped from all these other things that's that right. he's doing. He continues. And yet the final sentence says, yeah, he will come to his Yeah. Why does he, for example, in verse 42, 43, why does he attack why does he attack Egypt? Because of the beginning of verse 40, the king of the south is colliding with him. Okay. The king of the south is moving against him, so what does he do? He moves against him. All right. 
I mean, so it's it's just you're 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 kind of building on it these movements of all these armies. Um, this is and this when we get to the and I'll remind you of all this. At the rate we're going, it'll probably be about next year at this time. We'll be in Revelation 16, but. Uh, when we get to that, I'll remind you of this. We'll probably go back and look at this a little bit because the, when you're in that material in Revelation 13 and then 16 and 17, it's assuming you know this. It's assuming you know about this. So we'll go back and we'll look at it again because it mentions these the southeast and western, uh, southeast and southern powers. So I, I hope. Uh, you know, I, I don't want you to be back. You might feel a little overwhelmed, and that's okay. But if you're, if you're at the point you say, I have no idea what Ekman is talking about, then I want to go back and start over again because I don't want you to say that. But uh, so let me see where you're at. Any other questions? I know this is – yes, please. In verse uh, 44. Yes. That's right. But it, this will parallel what we will read, and I'll just flip over there right now. This parallels perfectly what we will read in Revelation chapter 19. As you... Um, um, Verse 19 of, of Revelation 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war. War against him. And so, I mean, you see, it's this, and then, then that's when Jesus comes back. And the beast is seized. The false prophet is seized. The individual will get what we'll talk about earlier. Even in the previous um, uh, the previous sections in chapter 16 and 17, there's this description of the armies of the earth gathering together in the Valley of Jezreel for battle, the Battle of Armageddon, Campaign of Armageddon. So, uh, yeah, and it, the the destruction of human life in this campaign is going to be far worse than anything we've ever seen in human history. And the book of Revelation is going to talk about that. I just, I'm reading, I don't know if you've, any of you have ever read that, I'm reading Rick Atkinson's masterful trilogy on World War II, and I'm about halfway through volume three. I, I needed to be reminded of that, of the utter carnage of World War II. I mean, World War I was bad, just the unbelievable carnage and loss of life in World War II. It, it was just staggering. And, and as I was reading through this, uh, you know, it's, it's the first volume is the North African campaign. The second volume is the Italian campaign in 43 and 44. And the last volume is the, when they, Normandy and all the stuff as they then destroy Germany. But, I mean, it's just the loss of life is just unbelievable. And civilian life, not, not just the soldiers, which was horrible. And, and Russia, you know, the estimate is Russia lost 20 Million people in World War II. That's it. That's it. Really, that's a staggering number, isn't it? And that's one country. That, let alone all the other attendant consequences of the war, the the cost and the loss of national treasure, and then the refugees that were created. I mean, it just it it was really. 
And it's almost like, if you think that was bad, wait till you see this last campaign of human history. So to be a Christian in this era is what? My own view, Jim, is that the rapture of the church occurs before the 70th week begins. So the church will not be here. However, and we will study that in chapter 7 of Revelation, there will be witnesses for Christ, and huge numbers of people will put their faith in him. But, and this is what is also very clear, those who trust the Lord during the tribulation will be persecuted and will suffer. Many of them will be martyred. Because they are the enemies of Antichrist. They're, they're you know, standing against him. And uh, so, but anyway, uh, I thought it's another hand on this side. Okay, yeah, please, before Fred. Can you just answer my question? <clears throat> 20 million, you talk about Russia. Right. Both soldiers and civilians. Does that, is there any reference there to the, the, the millions that Stalin starved? That's, a sec, that's another figure. At a different point. That's a different point. Robert Conquest, who just passed away here two months ago, Robert Conquest is a magnificent book called The Great Terror, which is a history of Stalin's purges during the 1930s. His estimate is that Stalin killed between 30 and 35 million people. Yeah, I mean, it could be as high as 40. It, but when the archives of Russia were opened after the, the collapse of communism, the collapse of USSR, uh, the, uh, Conquest's, Robert Conquest, the author, his estimates were confirmed by the archive material. So, I mean, it was, I mean, was, Hitler was horrible. There's no doubt about it. But in just the loss of human life by purges and Stalin was worse. But you know who's even worse than that? Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong's purge, the estimate is he killed between 40 and 60 million people. Now, you start getting into numbers like that, I, I just can't even imagine what that was like. These are, you know, the 20th century, the 20th century witnessed the three greatest butchers of history, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong, all in the name of an atheistic, thoroughly anti-Christian, Worldview: The Nazi worldview is not Christian. The communist worldview is not Christian. So, I mean, that tells me something. <laughs> that when you turn against God and embrace an alternative worldview, life becomes very, very cheap. Life is just a means to an end, which is consolidating power, which is what Stalin was doing in the 1930s. It's interesting that the Germans persecuted the Jews now they're going to take millions of Muslims into the country. But that was a weird twist on history. There's a thought that Angela Merkel is doing that to atone, to try to change Germany's image. Yeah, but I don't know. I think it might be. Oh, it's going to be an interesting twist. Yes. They do not get along. Yes. They want to be nice people, but I mean, they've been over there and they treat Americans really good. But they don't really like people coming into the country because their customs are so different. And they became, because of the church was so domineering, I think, over the people, they're not, there's not, the, the, it's a different kind of Christianity I think in Germany than it is in America. Well, it's, it's become a very secular yeah, country. Very secular but, yeah. So it's hard for them to forgive and just kind of meld yeah. together. It's going to be an interesting thing. All right, why don't we get back to the Bible, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
let me, I would really, I really want to finish Daniel today. So let's take a look at chapter 12, particularly those first couple of verses. Now, at that time, chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1 says, all right, now that's a time marker. What time? The time that's described at the end of chapter 11. The end time. Now, at that time, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will rise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Who talks like that? Jesus does in Matthew 24, verse 22. Jesus says exactly the same thing. There is coming, and this is where he uses the word tribulation. There's coming a time of tribulation such that has never occurred in the history of the world. So that language here is very parallel. Who is that prince? It's Michael. Michael is the only um, angelic being named in the Bible that is called an archangel. He's mentioned several times in the Bible. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Verse 2. What is verse 2 declaring? A resurrection. That's why one of those questions that is sometimes asked, I've been asked that a number of times, is the resurrection taught in the Old Testament? Yes. And here is one of the many places where it's taught. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake. That's the language that the scriptures use of the resurrection. Those who are saints, those who are believers, sleep. First Thessalonians chapter 4, when we studied that last year, those who are asleep in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up to be with him, in, in verse 17. So, of this, so this is like First Thessalonians 4. This would be, yes. But this is also referring, this is also referring to all of the Old Testament saints. Yeah, they would be raptured up too. Yeah, they would be resurrected. This is separate from the rapture, oh, okay. but oh, it's okay. they, at the end. And this is really, this is really fascinating because it, it would seem to indicate then, and again, we'll see some of this when we get to Revelation, that the Old Testament saints will be part of the population of the kingdom of Christ. Ezekiel chapter 37 speaks of David being a vice regent with Christ in the coming kingdom. So these are really exciting things. Just think, you and I will be able to walk the streets of Jerusalem during the kingdom of Jesus Christ with Daniel and talk to him and see David. And I sort of am excited about that. I know you guys don't get excited about biblical truth, but it's just a, kind of a... I'm, I'm being really humorous there. Say again, please. No, I was just, I was just saying, well, I said we're after the church, but the, is this later then? I mean, because I mean, you think of all the Christians being wrapped up, that would be the yeah, ground, But too. remember, that would be right before the 70th week starts. That yeah, 70, right. This is near the end of that. Okay. This is right when Christ is coming back. Okay. And uh, so, you know, you, you, that's how I think we are instructed yeah. to look at it. Okay. But this is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. This is a very important truth, too. Okay. It will be part of the population of the kingdom. <clears throat> and then for those who have insight, 
will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. These are the people who are going to be resurrected and will serve and rule. They'll shine brightly. That's the language that's used of the kingdom of Christ in Revelation chapter 20. Now the rest of the book, it's just the, the rest of the chapter here, is um, Daniel. It's very personal for Daniel, and I, I don't know if I want to go into it in detail, but it's very personal for Daniel. And the angel just says to him, Daniel, verse 4, conceal these words, seal them up until the end time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. What is he really saying there? He's, he's really saying to him, Daniel, write this down sealed up. It's, it's a book that, that will be a part of scripture. And this really isn't going to make sense until the end of time. That's when it's really going to start to make sense. And so Daniel, as you can imagine, Daniel is overwhelmed by this. I mean, it, it, he has to try to understand this. He, he, he's just absolutely overwhelmed by what he has heard and what he's learned. And the angel has said to him, seal this up. And Daniel has a couple more questions, and the angel asks, answers those questions. Again, that these things are all going to be accomplished at the very end of time. So I, I think what I'd like to do is kind of bring that to a conclusion. Uh, some of that is, is, I'm not sure, terribly relevant for our, our points of discussion um, it's repeating some things, and I, I don't know if it's terribly uh, necessary for us to go any further with this. But I want to kind of review a couple of things with you before we finish the book of Daniel. Um, and I, I just, I, if you have this framework in your mind, the details you will, you will forget. That's just natural. That's how we, we, generally, we generally learn but what the book of Daniel does is it gives us a framework for understanding the program of God. The first seven chapters is the framework of Gentile world history. Four great world kingdoms. That fourth kingdom will have two phases to it. Phase two is the phase that characterizes history at the point where Jesus is about to come back. And it will triumph, it meaning Gentile world history, will triumph with the kingdom of God being established. Then chapter 8 through 12, which we have just finished studying, is written in Hebrew, and it's the question, how do the Jews fit into this? Remember, when Daniel, that's Daniel lives, Daniel's part of the exiles. He's living in Babylon and then in Persia when Persia conquers Babylon. And so Daniel just asks, what about my people? And then Daniel, well, I erased that, so I can't go to the board. But in Daniel chapter 9, the Lord answers his question and says, Daniel, 77s of years have been declared for your people. 70 times 7 is 490 years. And the beginning of point of that is the decree of the Persian king for you to come back. And the end of that is Messiah being cut off. That's 69 weeks of years. Very specific. So that's 483 years. 
but Messiah's cut off, but we still have one more block, one more seven-year period. What happens to that? Well, that seven-year period goes on a vacation. And that doesn't show up until the end. And the, how many times did we read? The end time, at the end, during the end time. Remember those phrases just keep coming out. You will see this one arise. The little horn of Daniel 2, the little horn of Daniel 7, the willful king of Daniel 8, uh, and Daniel 11, this individual who will exalt himself to be worshipped. The New Testament builds on that and gives us names. He's Antichrist, he's the beast, he's the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. And he is the one who will lead the final rebellion against God. And that's going to occur in a seven-year period. The first three and a half years of that seven-year period, this beast will consolidate his world power. And he will become, he, he, will, he will appear as if there is nothing that he can't do. And the end result of that, in the middle of that three and a half period, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. Look for that. When you see that, that's really important. He will want to be worshipped as God. And then his worldwide coalition will start to unravel. And that's what we just read about. All the major powers of the world will move against him. As he moves into Israel, they will move against him, which will lead to what we learn is the campaign of Armageddon. And that's when Christ comes back. Daniel gives us that framework. Gentile world history, which culminates in the coming of the kingdom of God. How did the Jews fit into this? They're crucial. They're crucial to this. And it is at the end, when the Antichrist is in that land, that history will come to an end, because that's when Christ will come back. And that kingdom that is promised in 2 and 7 and 8 will be brought in by Jesus. And that's you know, what the New Testament teaches us. So Daniel just gives us this very, very helpful framework. And the rest of the Bible just adds more and more detail to this framework. So by the time you're in the end, you finish the book of Revelation, you really do understand the plan God has. A lot of details we don't know, but you have the framework. You really do. The Bible's clear on this. Do you have that framework, Daryl? Is there any insight that you have uh, with regards to the twelve hundred ninety days in verse eleven and twelve, Daniel twelve, and then it refers also to the end of the. 1,335 days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, let me... Daryl, if you caught Daryl's question, it's a really good question. But Daryl, it seems as if, and this is information that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. This is the return of Jesus. This is his second coming, Okay. Which ends, which brings to an end this seven-year period, this 70th-week period. But then before he sets up his kingdom, there's a time interval. And that time interval is a total of 75 days. And that is when he sets up his kingdom. Blessed is the person who survives those additional days. Why? Because they're going to end in the kingdom. So it's telling us that from the time that the Lord Jesus returns and defeats his enemies and so on, 
until he sets up his kingdom, which is declared and described for us in Matthew 25, will be a total of 75 days. What's going to happen in 75 days? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. You can infer some things. Uh, Armageddon's going to create a mess. You're going to have to clean it up. You're going to have to deal and bury the dead. I mean, I, I'm, I'm making guesses. We just don't know, Daryl. But it's giving us a time interval. And if we are to believe all of the references to time, why would we not believe these references to time? That's going to be the 75-day gap, ultimately, which is fascinating. And it, it says, blessed is the one who waits and attains to 1,335 days. Why? Because they're going to enter the kingdom. And so it's just, it's just telling us, okay, that's 75 extra days following the second advent of Jesus. Is that only 45 days, the difference between 1290 and 1335? It's, yes, but that, there's another reference, and that's the 1260 days, which is 300 and, or three and a half years. And 1260, 70, okay. okay. 1260, you subtract 1260 from 1335, you get because that's why I, I wanted to stay away from this. If you noticed, I tried to avoid this because, but Daryl is shrewd and he caught it and he asked a question. Okay, uh, man, uh, I hope some of this is really hard and to be un, understandable, it's overwhelming sometimes to keep all of this straight. So what I'd love to do is give you a test next week and see if you got it. But the moment I start giving tests in this class, I'll show up and there'll be absolutely no one here. So that won't happen. I hope it's been helpful. And now we'll start uh, like volume two of this, which is the book of Revelation. And it's going to be quite a while in our study till we get into the prophetic part of the book. Those first six chapters, they're, they're fabulous chapters. But it's really the focus on Jesus. And that's one of the things I hope will be a blessing to you. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are a God who has a plan for human history. And you don't share with us explicit details, but you share with us a framework. And Lord, it is amazing how accurate this is. There's four great world kings. We know exactly who they are. Daniel 8 even names them. It tells us it's Medo-Persia, it's Greece. And then this section that we didn't explicitly read verse by verse, but those details in chapter 11, that is exactly how it unfolded. When Alexander dies, those, those generals fight one another for several hundred years over the land of Israel. That's exactly what it says. The so Lord, we therefore should be able to trust those prophetic passages, which explain to us what the end of history is going to look like, and the rise of this little horn, this, this willful king who's going to lead their final rebellion against you. But the Bible declares, and we saw it again here, he will not be successful. Lord, the, the early church used to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I think it's appropriate for us to pray that 2,000 years later, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because ultimately, it is that hope and that great promise that's going to bring an end to the mess. And we see some of the mess even around us today. 
Lord, we trust you. We trust your word. We trust that you've declared to us truth. Now help us to live that. Help us to represent you well. Be with these men in all of their responsibilities, all of the issues that are part of living in a fallen world. Help them with their families, if they're still raising children, or even the impact they can have on grandchildren. We pray for Jim and the healing of his shoulder and the therapy and other physical needs there might be here in our larger group. Thank you, Lord, that you're a faithful God. We can trust everything to you. You're a good God, and we ask you to continue to use us in whatever ways you desire for us to be used, because, Lord, we truly owe you everything, and we want to represent you well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.